Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for your patience. Sorry for the delay in uh, lunch for some and for uh, the start of this session. Um, before I start and even introduce myself, I wanted to read a quote here from Nancy Andreessen, who's a leading authority on creativity, um, or is described as such. Uh, she has said about figures such as Vincent van Gogh, Sylvia Plath, Leo Tolstoy, and Virginia Woolf. Did mental illness facilitate such creatives' unique abilities? Or did mental illness impair their creativity after its initial meteoric burst? Or is the relationship more complex than a simple cause and effect in either direction? And now this is me. Or, I must add for the purposes of this session, is there a relationship at all? I'm Richard Gordon. I'm a film producer and an educator. And I'm also, what brings me here, the film curator of the Scottish Mental Health Arts and Film Festival. Very proud and happy to be in that role. Um, going into my second year now. Um, I was charged with looking after this mental health and film panel discussion. And what I decided to do, and I thought it was very appropriate in this context of having uh, people here, not just filmmakers, but people who are interested in the arts and involve themselves in many different kinds of um, artistic activity, to look at uh, cinema on creativity. We have a fantastic panel with which to do this. Um, we have on my immediate left, uh, Dr. Peter Byrne, and then we have Emma Davey in the middle there, and we have Hannah McGill. They're briefly described on screen here. I'll let um, our panelists either add or subtract to that um, when they get up here. Um, so just briefly, the order of events here in this session. Um, Peter has what I believe will be the, the perfect introduction to this session. It's a valuable survey of the mad genius in film. Then we have Hannah. We'll, oh, sorry, I've got to switch that around as, as discussed at lunch. Um, then we have Emma, who will be um, showing some clips and interspersing that with some discussion of artists who are depicted in documentary. And then we have Hannah, who will talk on cinematic storytelling in regard to creativity. Now, of course, I'm going to try to keep things moving, but not too quickly. Um, I have told our panelists that they can feel free to engage with each other during each of their sessions. At the end of what the three of them do, I'll give them first opportunity to comment on uh, what has been said, and then we'll open it up to you for comments and questions. Um, Lee Nifton, at the beginning of the day, for those who are here, you'll remember this, said it's always the technology. Um, it, a few of the clips uh, you're looking at for the content, not the quality of the presentation. You had to, to, to grab them from uh, a few uh, sources that didn't make it easy to make it the most pristine uh, clips that we, we might have had otherwise. Um, and also, I just, as a favor to the festival, I mean, we have a wrap-up session coming up at the end of the afternoon. Um, please, um, if you can, it might be difficult given all the, the in intensely interesting things that are said, but please try to think about how this session today can inform what our festival does in October, and increasingly, obviously, we're doing events around the year. We'd, we'd love to have your feedback on what would be best as we move forward. So, so keep that in mind as, as you're... Um, listening to and engaging in this session. Um, so first up, as I mentioned, Peter will go ahead and give his presentation on the myth of the mad genius. Thank you. So thank you very much. Uh, and it's great to be here in Scotland. And uh, it's been a fantastic uh, morning uh, so far. And uh, this is the who does he think he is slide. So I'm, a, I'm an NHS psychiatrist, been a psychiatrist for 23 years. I'm very fortunate the year 1992 that I started psychiatry, I also did a two-year film studies course 
So I guess my psychiatry is always interwoven uh, with lots and lots of cinema. And uh, with any excuse, I will always show, uh, you know, Stanley Kubrick films. And I, I just wanted to show five of, of his 11 films just as, as five images. Anybody, any ideas what ties in these five films and makes them different, I suppose, from, from his other films? What's the common plot theme of each of these films? Not the panel here, they're just too good. Anyone in the audience? <laughs> They're all people going a bit nuts and killing people, okay? So I, I say this as an example. Of course, as a psychiatrist, I do not want people to go and make another psychokiller film. I would argue none of these are psychokiller films, but I would argue with Stanley Kubrick that he's free to make any film he damn well pleases. And we're never about censorship, but it is always about engaging with different stories. So I say again, in other words, you know, make any film you choose, but let's just think about what we're watching and let's try and, uh, I suppose that the 1970s word would be deconstruct uh, some of the images that we're, want, we're, we're looking at. Uh, and the first thing about film, as you all know, is film begets film. So if you have a certain type of film, it makes a, a very similar film, just a little bit slightly different uh, uh, possible. And lots of the genres that we're going to, I'm going to cite here are kind of medical films, you know, biopics. The Americans call them uh, disease of the week films. Uh, uh, in the last uh, session about television, we had this, you know, the lowbrow tabloidy Channel 5, my extraordinary illness, you know, I eat concrete blocks or, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, go, go and let's have a good laugh at somebody who's a bit different. So uh, some of them are like that. The storylines are oh so familiar. In many of the movies I'm going to, going to cite here, it's usually about a carer who's been separated from the person who's ill. And then yeah, they don't really care in Act 1 of the film, but by Act 3, it's all learning and hugging, and you expect that uh, in the sort of films that we watch. Uh, but I do want to draw your attention to stereotypes, and I think these do come up in the films that I'm going to speak about. Of course, cinema and art are lies that tell the truth. I acknowledge that. But there are things within film that I want to draw your attention to. And fundamentally, the one question I want to ask with every one of the films I'm speaking about is, is this parity? Is this helping us understand the person with this problem? Or is this pity? And I think if you think about it, uh, that's, that's a real challenge uh, in filmmaking and in fiction films. Um, I, I, I've written uh, about this, believe it or not, 18 years ago, that there really are only four stereotypes uh, within cinema of mental ill health. There's the sad and the weak character that began with, you know, 1940s melodrama. Um, I, I would argue that that still pertains to this day with physical disability. So you can get a guy winning an Oscar for a physical impersonation of a guy in a wheelchair, which I find just bizarre. I think we look back on this and wonder uh, what that's about. Of course, I worry about mental illness as comedy, and that's still there in, in, in some very profitable Hollywood uh, products. And mental illness as violence, as I've alluded to before. And the last stereotype is the least common of them, and I'm not going to speak about it today, but it is very relevant to the current, uh, the outgoing uh, you know, British government, the UK government's uh, agenda of uh, mental illness as something people can fake. And let me tell you, uh, there are plenty of other physical ailments you can fake a lot easier uh, than faking mental illness, but uh, it does happen in cinema. But in, in one image, I wanted to remind you that we have the psycho killer on the left there. Here's Johnny, that's Jack 
uh, Nicholson from uh, uh, The Shining. On the top there, we have Mental Illness Comedy. This was billed, uh, me, myself, and Irene, as a schizophrenia comedy. This is an hilarious scene where a girl gives him back chat, so he tries to drown her in a fountain. So, as you can tell, the comic potential uh, is, is pretty amazing uh, from, from that film. So, j- jokes that aren't about defecation and difference are, are usually, of course, in the Farley Brothers about mental illness. And then, with very great intentions based on a real-life novella, The Snake Pit, this is this idea of mental illness as something that's, that evokes pity and that we should feel sorry for that person, uh, pretty much the language of, of melodrama. And I've been exercised recently about a, a mental disorder of autism. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but the Americans decided to stop using the word Asperger's because it implied high IQ, and they, they, they started talking about autism. And I'm not so sure that these uh, films about autism particularly help us to understand the disorder, with the exception of the two documentaries I've highlighted there, uh, a documentary called Neurotypical and uh, Beautiful Young Minds, which brings me to the, the very latest uh, movie, which is just... Uh, down in the Glasgow Film Theatre at the moment, X plus Y, uh, which I, I would recommend as, I think, a very, and I'm going to speak about this later, uh, useful depiction of autism. But on the right, I, I was just quoting sort of six schizophrenia films, and they're very, very common schizophrenia films. They're all based on real-life people, and in a sense, they're all people who are, who are marked out as special and very gifted. The first one is, a, is about a talented baseball player, a talented actress and writer in Francis, very famous uh, Australian writer, An Angel at My Table. Uh, Shine is the uh, piano player, David Helfgott. Beautiful Mind, you all know the gifted mathematician, uh, Nash, John Nash. And the soloist about, again, a gifted musician. And even though there's plenty within these films that's laudable, I'm not so sure uh, that many people who watch them get a lot from them other than the tortured genius punished by society. So I'm just putting that out there. Uh, I'm not condemning the films. I'm just looking at the tropes and the stereotypes uh, within the films as well. Um, a colleague, uh, Christopher Frayling, has written about scientists in films, and the scientists are usually portrayed as absolutely crazy. So I'm just acknowledging that for you. It's in his book. But I'm, I'm intrigued, just in one slide, by television. How come when you have the gifted physician of House or the gifted detective of Monk or the incredibly gifted um, police procedural uh, policewoman, uh, Sarah Lund, uh, sorry, in, uh, in The Bridge, not Sarah Lund, uh, how come they're all portrayed with very severe addiction and mental ill health problems? What is that about? Is that about uh, filmmakers, or in this case program makers, wanting us to say, I can do complex characters, I can do ambivalence, uh, or is it wanting maybe to take the tortured genius through that torture and to take them down a peg or two? So I'm just, again, uh, putting these up. I, I haven't got uh, you know, the, the, all the answers on this. And we touched on bipolar in, in the last discussion on television as well. And generally, generally speaking, uh, if, you're in, if you've got bipolar disorder in the movies, or if you're celeb with bipolar, it's just assumed you have very high IQ, which isn't, I'm afraid, the reality of bipolar. There's absolute a spectrum of all IQs, uh, as there is in this room uh, with, with people who have bipolar. And the sort of people, even in, in the real-life stuff, or in, in, I'm not going to go through these uh, one by one, but the sort of images you see of bipolar are of a very, very creative person whose bipolar makes them even more creative. And as you know, Richard hinted uh, at the start, not all of us who work in mental health believe that. Uh, sometimes it's, it's about something as simple as anyone who's experienced depression and has got out of that hole of depression is far more able to grab life and to make uh, creative things happen 
uh, having had that experience. Uh, people who've got severe depression do not produce a lot during their episode of depression. So I just, I just put these up there as well. I, I have very strong feelings about uh, Daniel and De- De- Devil and Daniel Johnson. Uh, we, we showed it in the very first uh, Scottish Mental Health Arts and, and Film Festival here, and we evaluated it, and it made stigma and prejudice and potential discrimination worse, not better. So seeing this musician who was tortured and very unwell, and the whole... F- documentary was about the pessimism of him being unwell. I think they treated him not as a documentary subject, but a documentary object. So I, I have strong views about that. Mr. Jones is a Mike Figgis film. He writes about this beautifully. He said he made this amazing bipolar film about, you know, Richard Gere plays a bipolar guy, some fantastic scenes of depression, all of which were cut out of the film against his wishes. So as far as Hollywood was concerned, bipolar illness means bursting into the Los Angeles Symphony Orchestra and conducting the orchestra. It's great cinema. <laughs> great for Richard Gere. Uh, thankfully, he won no awards for it, but it wasn't the film that Mike Figgis actually wanted to make. Um, I, I, I would laud uh, Silver Linings Playbook to you, but again, uh, because I think that the, the film does discuss complex family issues and it shows a bipolar person being very irritable, but again, uh, this idea is that they're very, very gifted and, and very, very high IQ there. Um, I'm a big fan of X plus Y, not just because it's the last film I've seen, uh, but I'm a big fan of it because it actually is from a filmmaker who made a documentary about the Maths Olympiad. There is such a thing as a Maths Olympiad. Who knew? Okay. But he made a film about it, and he was interested in the area, and then he he got involved with a writer, and he wrote about it. And even though uh, people with autism and their families often speak about people without autism as neurotypicals, um, in the film, it's explicit that not everybody with autism is some sort of fantastic genius. There's one character with autism within the film who says he doesn't even like maths. It just so happens he's good at it. And I think that's interesting. I really like the quote that came through The Guardian just a week ago where a, a, a mum of someone with autism said, if you meet one person with autism, then you've met one person with autism. It's a wonderful way of trying to tease away those stereotypes that somehow, well, we saw Rain Man, so what don't I know about autism? Another dreadful Dustin Hoffman performance, but somehow uh, I, I know so much about autism because I, I've watched Rain Man twice. Um, I would recommend X plus Y because... It is about disability. One of the characters has multiple cirrhosis, one has autism, and they have fabulous, as we all do, mechanisms of denial of their disability, and somehow the film does actually move towards an acceptance, which I I suppose uh, is very satisfying as a narrative. And the film is fundamentally about loss, and I think if you go and see it, which I recommend, it's on the Glasgow Film Theatre as as I speak, uh, so uh, don't delay. Try and catch an afternoon screening if you don't like what we're about to tell you about. And uh, I would say as well that it does also tackle difficult ideas about the so-called awkward autistic person as well, and it tells a, a very different story as well. So I'm, I'm not going to show a trailer because I really want to, to, to hear what other people on the panel have to say, and we want to hear your questions as well. Um, and this is something that just I, I find bizarre, and this is the, uh, you know, poor old Stanley Kubrick died in 1999, but it doesn't stop people writing about him. And a colleague from Ireland, Michael Fitzgerald, has been churning out lots of articles saying that Stanley Kubrick was autistic and here's why. Uh, you can see, I don't know if you can see the, the small print there, if my screen grab uh, got it wrong, but the claim was that Adolf Hitler and Jeffrey Damler also had autism, which I think is just not true. Uh, and I'm, I'm not so sure that this sort of, uh, because somebody is gifted, they must have autism because they didn't seem, you know, Stanley Kubrick was not a nice man on a film set. It doesn't make him uh, a man with, with autism. So I'm just... 
uh, sort of balancing my, my Kubrick uh, uh, slides earlier on with this here. And this is my last uh, slide. And I'm absolutely, the heading is, tell me why I'm wrong. I'm, I'm trying to provoke as well as to, uh, to give you uh, some of my views. Yes, it is true that some personality traits are associated with creativity, but I'm not convinced that having mental illness in itself is, is associated with creativity. It puts a lot of pressure on the one in four of us who have a severe mental health problem to go and uh, write the perfect American novel or make a great film or go out there and, and do a sculpture in Georgia Square, etc. So just, th you know, think, think about uh, what, what that says if we expect everybody uh, to be creative in that. And I'd also say that usually the special powers you see with people with mental illness in, in cinema is that they're going to be able to, you know, to murder sort of 28 people and they'll be shot 10 times and they can still walk and swim and climb and all the rest of it. Because that's, that's the genre of, of psycho killer films. Uh, it is true that any new film kind of has to be the same as other films you've seen and they have an angle. And usually the angle pushes the boundaries of what I think is credible uh, in mental health uh, way beyond that. And... Again, I think, is this about creating more distance? Uh, is, the, is setting the bar this high and, and this, in this odd way creating difference rather than helping us understand? Because I think more distance means more prejudice and more stigma and discrimination, as I understand it. And I'll just uh, finish with the idea that I think the films I'm, I'm speaking about, with very few exceptions, uh, are about feeling sorry for people, not about an idea of parity between the one and four of people with a severe mental, a significant mental health problem and people who do not have that problem. So thank you. Well, thank you, Peter. And uh, I have to say uh, that was impressive, not least uh, in terms of speed. Um, <laughs> I think it was uh, you know, 15 minutes if you need it. Uh, I won't mind 10, but uh, if you it hit 10, it would be two beers I'd owe you, not just one. Um, so next here, and I'm just trying to get to the back to the main slide. Just put your B again. Oops, sorry. B? There we go. You got it, sir. Oh, gone. Back. Right. Yes, and that, won't, that slide won't be staying on too long anyway. Um, next, getting the order right this time, um, Emma, who's going to stay seated, unless she wants to be up here at the lectern, I thought, I thought you would, might enjoy you being where you are, um, is going to um, talk and also um, lead me to uh, play some clips. So just you, you tell me, and I'll find them here okay. somewhere. <laughs> so um, my talk is more just I'm sharing some musings with you. And uh, it's very much from the perspective of someone who's a documentary maker. And also I tutor young and new filmmakers um, at Edinburgh College of Art. So I'm interested in questions of dealing with real people with, um, with mental health problems um, and the complexity of that. The complexity, I suppose, the complexity of how you don't reduce the person to a sensational story, how you don't um, make a film that is trying to portray something in a conclusive way, how a documentary can have an element of something more expansive is something that really concerns me as a filmmaker, no matter who I'm filming, um, and how we empower the person that we're filming so that we're not um, the one that has the voice, but that actually they 
have a voice. Um, so these are the questions that I'm interested in when I'm making films and when I'm working with filmmakers. And I suppose to sum it up, I, I began thinking about how we actually make sure that when we're filming somebody, the other person who we're filming retains a mystery. And um, isn't just, isn't just a, a, a sort of collection of symptoms or a collection, as I say, of sensational, sensational stories that, that people might remember. So the unknowableness of the other person is something that I feel films need to celebrate um, while still trying to convey a certain perspective on their lives. So as a filmmaker, I, I don't have a lot of experience filming people with what we call mental illness, but I think, you know, there are so many different shades of what that might be defined as that I suppose almost everyone that I meet, I think, falls into some category of something um, that might be called that. So I, I, I find it an interesting question when I'm thinking about who I have filmed. But one thing is for sure, I've over the years made quite a lot of um, work uh, about artists. And I was saying to Richard... Um, unlike fiction, the experience in documentary often when you're trying to film artists is that with all respect to them as people and their work, they're often very boring on film and not quite as exciting as fiction films would make them. And um, the reason they make work is because it's the work that expresses the complexity of the thing that they want to, want to communicate. And so to actually make a documentary about, about this can often actually be strangely and paradoxically um, much less interesting than the work itself. So that was just one thing that I wanted to say. And I think along those lines, I just wanted to say that maybe on the spectrum of, of mental health, um, depression is something that is very hard to make filmically interesting in documentary because it's naturally... Um, not something that displays the symptoms of some of the more glamorised or fetishised um, illnesses, but it's probably a more common thing for artists to experience or for any of us to experience. And I began thinking about how, how, do, how do documentary makers depict depression or what I would call the dark night of the soul that is often um, something that artists deal with. Um, so how a film shows an internal state and doesn't just show outward signs of behaviour um, made me reflect on one of our filmmakers who had come through college a few years ago um, called Joanna Wagner, who herself suffered from depression. And she was very interested in making a film about an artist who lived in Edinburgh called Joyce Gunn-Cairns and her battle with depression. Um, and Joyce and Joanna had a very brave and honest relationship and made a film very much together, I think, called The Inner Shape. Um, and I wanted just to show a bit of it because also I think that we never show new work enough and the work of young filmmakers. So I wanted to show a bit just to, um, to show a filmmaker and an artist, neither of them famous, trying to battle with questions of depiction. And um, what interested me about this was that at a certain stage, the filmmaker, Joanna, really struggled with actually 
the film being slightly depressing and the subject being slightly depressing. So how the film answered that problem actually became a really interesting question. So I, I just wanted to show a little bit of that first, thanks. And fingers crossed that will happen. <laughs> Aha, I like to see the play button. For as long as I can remember, I have felt in the grip of something which I really didn't understand. <coughs> something that tormented me, essentially. and happiness because I've been um, screwed up. <laughs> screwed up by something that, that um, has driven me. Um, you know, it's a kind of neurotic force in a sense. If you're a deeply creative person, you're always striving for something deeper. Okay, so um, interestingly, you know, with, with documentary making, and I suppose with all filmmaking to a certain extent, the problem of depiction always, um, always creates a great clue for filmmaking. So the problem of how to portray depression in a way that wasn't depressing became, in a way, the crux of the structure of the film, where um, actually the artist process itself, which is, in a way, what both inspired and, um, I suppose, you know, was both an inspiration for the, the artist, but was also, in a way, what fueled her work, became, in a way, what structured um, Joanna's film and what gave it an energy that went beyond any depiction of depression. So where a film finds its energy is really interesting with portrayal um, of, of, of these states and um, keeping the energy... In the, in, the, in the hands of the subject, as I say, is something that interests me. So another film I just wanted to reference um, is a really beautiful film about the, the musician Nick Drake, and it was made by a Dutch filmmaker called Jerome Bergvens, and was a film called A Skin Too Few, The Days of Nick Drake. I don't know if any of you saw it, but um, I'm sure there have been many films about Nick Drake. It was such an intriguing and... Yeah, sad, um, sad artist who 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 died so young, um, whose work we we have thanks to just three albums that he left and very few interviews or or um, or writing that he left um, other than his work. So this film, in my mind, um, both managed to convey something of who he was, but also honoured the mystery of not being able to define his experience. And um, for me, anyway, conveyed a certain sense of the poetic sensibility of his inner world. Um, so it's done so rarely that, that documentary makers really try and imagine the inner world of the person that they're filming. 
Um, so often it becomes a reductive uh, series of talking heads. Um, and although talking heads form a, a large part of this film, I think the, the bits that are really memorable and really exciting were when he, um, the filmmaker got in a hot air balloon and filmed uh, the countryside round about the place in England where Nick Drake grew up, and particularly the trees. He references a lot of trees in his songs. And certainly my memory of the film is this sort of vision of being slightly above the normal world, looking at it through eyes that were different, like I'm seeing it the first time. And I thought that that was a very generous way of actually allowing us into a perspective that is more of an artist's perception where you're both half inside and half outside the world and thinking of that disjointed sense of both being part of and not being part of also being perhaps um, analogous to the, the experience of, of what, maybe what Nick Drake went through. And of course... He's not saying this is what he went through, but he's trying to, he's trying to do that, that brave thing of really imagining. So I just wanted to play a little bit of this just as a, as a different kind of um, film. Is it possible to turn off these, wee, these lights up here a wee bit, just when we, when, we, when we show a wee bit of it? See if you can. Thanks. So we'll just play the beginning of this film. And this is a late-breaking entry, so the end of the <laughs> clip is to be determined by you. you say, okay. Cut. Okay. That's the director you are. he wanted to be a star but I think he had this feeling that he'd got something to say to the people of his own generation he had a feeling that he could make them happier and he didn't feel that he did that Discovering Nick. Once you discover Nick, you're going to tell other people. Discover Nick. If you met a girl and you took her back to her room, and if there was some Nick Drake records there, you were probably going to want to marry her. Probably going to want to marry her. I feel sort of a bit of an affinity with him. I think of of like Nick, and it makes me think of home. I feel sort of 
a bit of infinity within I think that one of his great tragedies, I think he said to someone, I've got no more songs. No more songs. There were moments when it was very sad working with Nick. Later on. So I think we should just stop there, thanks. Uh, I don't know if you can tell from that clip, it's a, it's a bit frustrating that um, we can't see it a bit better, but as the film progresses, the, 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 the balloon just hovers just over this very suburban and rather well-heeled English life that he lived. And, um, yeah, it's very interesting that actually what happens just with the imagery is that actually we get a sense of the loneliness of that world, and the, the, the sort of alienating nature of this sort of rather stifling, posh British upbringing, um, which really interests me because I think so often in depictions in, in documentary, as I say, um, they sensationalise the symptoms and don't look at the context in which somebody is, um, is living. And in fact, context almost completely falls away. So um, I, th I think this is a very, a very interesting film to see. Um, I, I just wanted to reference another, another type of documentary that I think um, is probably better known, which is the documentary of the recluse, the, the slightly um, reclusive artist whose, whose work may suddenly get discovered or indeed not be seen until, until their death. And the, the one film that that you may, you may know or you may have heard of is um, a recent film called Finding Vivian Mayer about uh, this photographer who um, was also a nanny and spent her life taking the most wonderful photographs that are every bit as good as anything of the magnum photographers. Um, and interestingly, the depiction in the film of her as an artist, I think is slightly overshadowed by um, the question of her as making freaky choices to become unknown or become a nanny. And I think particularly in depiction of women, and um, this, is, this is often the case, um, the New Yorker uh, review of the film said, um, Finding Vivian Mayer shows that stories of difficult women can be unflattering even when they are told in praise. The unconventional choices of women are explained in the language of mental illness, trauma or sexual repression as symptoms of pathology rather than as an active response to structural challenges or mere preference. And I think this is really interesting that um, in a way the documentary can't quite, can't quite allow um, the aberrant choices of someone to be seen as... Uh, free choices, but rather as signs of kind of she must be nutty. Um, so I, I wanted to compare that to another film that we were we were talking about over lunch as being a particularly uh, strong film, which unfortunately wasn't particularly picked up um, generally. But um, as with many documentaries, we saw in the festival, actually in the Edinburgh Festival, when Hannah was programming, called Girl with the Black Balloons, and it was directed by Corinne Vanderburg, who's an artist. And it was very much tracking the relationship of the filmmaker with um, a character called Bettina, who had lived in, lived in the Chelsea Hotel in New York for many decades, 
And she was the most extraordinary looking woman who basically um, who basically lived in a in a in a hovel with ever rising newspapers, but surrounded by her work and in a way saw her life as a sort of work of art. It would be good to see a little clip of this and I'll just say a few words about that and then pass you on to Hannah. Thanks. That was a test, Emma. I was, you didn't notice that I was catching up oh, with well you. Done. As you were Thank you. I thought, I thought we may run out of time, so I thought it was better. No, no, you, you, okay, you switched your order, but I kept up with you. <laughs> Thanks. A few years ago, I stayed at the Chelsea Hotel in New York. And like everyone who visits this landmark, I went looking for the doors. You know, where Bob Dylan wrote Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, or where Sid Vicious stabbed Nancy, and where Andy Warhol filmed Chelsea Girls. But what actually really captivated me about this legendary hotel was the elegance and strength of this staircase. So one day, I came back with my camera and I decided to make a film surrounded by this beautiful structure. And while filming on the fifth floor, I stumbled upon a woman who lives in the shadows of the Chelsea and has locked herself away for over 40 years. I don't think I've ever met anyone like her in my life. So I think what's so stunning about this film is that the filmmaker um, manages to include the complexity of portraying this woman, Bettina, who she met and became friends with, as the central part of the film. Um, So she's not making herself invisible in the process invisible, but is putting it right in the frame and right in the centre of the film, including... including, um, a moment where uh, she tries to encourage the main character, Bettina, to basically tidy her room and reveal her works of art. So this happens in the film. And then I think afterwards really questions, what have I done? What have I done in trying to shape her experience so much? And I think, in a way, that's slightly a, a fantastic metaphor for our responsibility as filmmakers not to not to bully the subject into submission narratively too, you know, in a way not to, not to try to make someone make a neat story for us. And I think that's what I meant when I started by saying to honour the complexity of the other, to honour the mystery of the other and um, the, the freshness of including her own perspective for me was much more exciting than a film um, which just spends its time chronicling um, sensational stories of somebody's strange behaviour. Um, I think that's probably oh, a good okay. place Shall to have that. Unless, <laughs> unless you had one, one last... Uh, Thank you. But, well, no, that's, that was quick. I should probably move on to Hannah, just to allow some time for comments and questions here. So, um, Hannah, the, uh, um, the stage is yours, if that mic is working. Do you want to take, take mine over here, maybe? Do you want this one? Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, 
oh, I really want to see Girl with Black Balloons again. If you can get hold of that film, it's fantastic. And as Emma said, very not seen enough. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit, and it, it sort of takes us back somewhat to what Peter was saying, hopefully pulls some of that stuff together. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about the concept of destigmatizing um, mental health issues, mental illness, whether that's really possible in the context of narrative and storytelling, whether it's desirable. Um, um, there's been a lot of talk of, of late about this concept of we have to destigmatize. Um, and I think what's very difficult about that is that when you talk about mental health, and I'm sure this has and will come up in other conversations here, um, you're talking about such a very wide spectrum of experience, whether it's physiological, neurological damage, whether it's traumatic life experience, um, whether it's something episodic or something constant, um, whether it's curable or not, uh, whether you're happy with it or not happy with it. Um, so to have a sort of unilateral approach that says we all have to be absolutely destigmatized and accepting of every type of behavior that this might um, incur, I think is a very difficult thing to put on people, um, whether sufferers or not sufferers of mental health issues. The fact that I'm not even sure if I should say sufferer, you know, it's, it shows how complicated it all is. Um, some of the reading that I did around this was talking about another sort of current trope, which is to suggest that a mental health difficulty is just like any illness, just like any injury. Um, it's just like having a, a, a physical injury. Um, that's you know, there's, there's a very positive side to that sort of argument. It's also quite a hard one to support because, again, mental health issues are not that simply de defined as something that has gone wrong with a part of your body necessarily. The, something that I read about this said that um, a mental health issue is better defined, and it's a word that Emma just used coincidentally, as a mystery than as um, an illness because it is mysterious why certain things happen to people. Um, the brain is still colossally mysterious, never mind the, the vastness of emotional experience that people have. Um, so I think when we speak about destigmatizing, it's quite a complicated thing that we're asking for. Um, in the context of storytelling, I think it becomes even more complicated because stories are where we put things that are difficult to say, that might be forbidden to say, um, things that we're afraid of, things that we want. Um, Yes, movies to some extent uh, consolidate and promote cliches and stereotypes, but as is apparent in what the others have said and shown, a movie is not just one thing. Uh, we tend to talk about it was like something from a movie, as if that's one type of thing. We tend to mean a certain sort of mainstream Hollywood narrative. But it's important to bear in mind when we talk about film and cinema storytelling that we're talking about a vast range of different types of storytelling, there's the Hollywood narrative. Even that's not just one thing. But there's also a vast range of voice, patronizingly called world cinema, which is the whole rest of the world, um, including industries that are massive that many of us will never experience. And if we do, might really not be able to connect with just for, for cultural or experiential reasons. Then there's also the sort of smaller scale independent filmmaking, which might have its own rules or lack thereof. And there's amateur filmmaking, which, as we know, is sort of more available to people than ever before and more people are more able to distribute it themselves than ever before. So talking about the way things are depicted on film is also a complicated spectrum of, of stuff. We need to be careful about how we, how we define our terms, whether it's a mental illness or a film. Um, so the, the, 
it's the, the positive to draw from that is that there do exist vastly variable depictions in, in these different kinds of cinema, I think, of, of different states of mental being and different conceptions of what is normal or, or what we, how we want people to behave around this. But to go back to the idea of stigmatisation, um, almost any story, almost any narrative really requires some sort of disruption of the expected course of events. Um, that is something that we fear. It's also something that we desire. Um, so disturbed or aberrant behaviour tends to be a feature of pretty much any story you might tell, whether it's falling in love, which can be a pretty disturbed, disturbing state. Um, you'll see in many, many movies that the line between falling in love and stalking, very, very thin. <laughs> um, someone's response might just depend on, you know, how they feel about you. So the, these, the lines of who's the criminal and who's the... Um, the hero or you know dependent on very sort of slight definitions of what's good and bad behavior um, being a criminal being the victim of a crime or the, the the stuff that Peter was talking about about having exceptional abilities or capacities these are all things that that drive narratives it's quite difficult to tell a story without some element of that of coming into it arguably we have certain embedded expectations of stories as well um, I mean I'm a film critic and I'm very often struck by how much critics will criticise a film on the basis that it didn't come to a satisfactory conclusion didn't sort itself out, it's like well did your day come to a satisfactory conclusion, is your life sorting itself out, we have expectations of film narratives to satisfy us in a particular way that, that arguably rest on very deeply embedded ideas of what a story should be um, some people, you know, the sort of Jungian ideas that those are not just embedded from stories that we hear as children, that they're actually sort of in us as, as humans. Um, so whether we can or should expect to be able to tell stories without trying to solve issues or whether we can have heroes and villains without demonising somebody who might have a disorder, um, th this is something that I think is interesting to look at in the context of this discussion. Goodness knows that when a film does try and really break down and contextualise someone's issues, it can make a film very, very dull. I mean, I, people always uh, remember the shower scene in Psycho, the beginning bits of Psycho, but it's only when you sit there and watch the whole thing that you remember that the whole second half of the film is someone sitting and explaining everything that's wrong with Norman, and it's really boring, because the drama all falls out of it, and it becomes something sort of academic and, and, and really kind of dull. Whereas all the, the energy of the character is when he is um, unexplained at, at the beginning of the film. Um, Unless we adopt a sort of Christian conception of, of, of good and evil um, and say that there are bad guys and good guys in a movie, arguably any story that, that's got a villain in it or that's got violence in it is dealing with somebody who's got a disordered mind, got a troubled mind, and it becomes quite difficult to imagine a narrative if you are destigmatizing all of your villains, you know? <laughs> and, you know, the, the, this idea, and the, the others have talked about this quite a bit, the idea of creativity is fascinating and aberrant whether we can avoid being compelled and fascinated by people who are, have abnormal gifts, whether we should feel guilty about that, um, whether we're always objectifying them when we want to look at them. They don't even have to be abnormally gifted. I mean, if you look at Grey Gardens, which is another film that we were just talking about, um, uh, Edie Beale is not someone who's necessarily abnormally gifted. She's just fascinatingly eccentric. I mean, that, that's arguably a troubling film in that the people involved are troubled people, but it's done with affection and, and love, or it's objectifying and fetishizing someone who is in terrible trouble. Um, the idea of somebody who is 
abnormally creative or productive very often has a negative impact on the people around them, which is why quite often you find these stories being told by the children of these or the relatives of these extremely creative people because it's had an impact on, on their own lives. Um, because while the impulse to be creative might not be that out of the ordinary, we probably all have that to one extent or another, the focus and determination and hard work and time that is involved in creating an exceptional body of work can certainly be sort of detrimental to other areas of life and that can leave damage in its wake. So how we conceive of the damage is not necessarily just the damage that might be in the person, it's the damage that might be caused by them as well. Um, so that, those were just some things that I wanted to put out there. Thank All you, right. Hannah. You did, did say you would go last because I could potentially brutally you cut you off even more so than I did, time. Emma. <laughs> but um, thank you to um, Hannah and Emma and, and Peter for their in insightful uh, and thoughtful contributions. Um, first of all, before I open it up, just uh, very briefly, if any of, of you on the panel uh, want to respond to what you've heard from your fellow panelists, and then we'll uh, bring the audience in. Do you want to go? No? You're all right? Yeah, well, I was struck by what Emma was saying about this idea that women who take a different path uh, somehow have to be, you know, not just punished but, but deemed to be abnormal. And it did remind me of, of sort of required reading when I was doing film studies, Janet Walker's book, Couching Resistance, where Hollywood, if you see Hollywood melodrama of the, the depressed or the neurotic or sometimes even they use the word hysterical woman, you're actually just looking at the subjugation of women over you know, three key decades in America. So I think these, these films say interesting things. I was also struck by what you said, um, the, film, the fiction film Frank, um, from last year, Lenny Abrams' film, about, remember the man, Frank Sidebottom, with the big paper, paper mache head, and even though within the film there's a bit of Hitchcock speak where the parents say, we didn't know he was mentally ill until, but for the rest of the film, he's just a deeply eccentric, but wildly creative and energetic person. And I do think Frank keeps the mystery. And uh, it, it struck a real chord with me because John Ronson, who knew the real side bottom, uh, felt that he personally had exploited him. Because, the, you know, and, and the film uh, actually, you know, the, the Gleason character, Dominic, Donald Gleason's character, exploits the guy. Because of course you're going to, if you're at a music festival and one of your guys has a big pepper mache head, well, guess who's going to be on the front page of the, and, and he, he used that. So I did think that, you know, fil film can do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Anything else from the two of you before we bring in the audience? Yeah. Sure. I mean, I just think and it's really interesting um, that, that the, the question of exploitation goes both ways too, though, because... Um, I think um, we shouldn't we shouldn't be deceived into thinking that the person who is being filmed, thinking of someone like Edie Beale and Grey Gardens, isn't also manipulating the camera to a certain extent. And it would be um, it would be disempowering to say that they were just um, you know that they were just just victims of of um, another's portrayal and of course the really interesting work in documentary is always in the area of moral complexity and um, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed also this question of what would, what would any story be like if we, de de if we did de <coughs> take away the stigma of, um, 
of the darker sides of people's personality and you know the ongoing story of um, yeah. but I, I think some, yeah. some behavior should be stigmatized I mean Absolutely. I'm very glad that drink driving is stigmatized <laughs> you know I, I think that's a really good thing to destigmatize it's interesting in Ireland where I'm from in the 1970s the TV ad to stigmatize drink driving mm. said that giving the car keys to a drunk is like giving a shotgun to a lunatic <laughs> so you, you can guess you can guess where I'm coming from with that remark but I, I, you know, I, I think behaviours should be stigmatised. If people, you know, if, for example, uh, and I'll be absolutely real about this, I've, I've often, as a psychiatrist, been involved in horrible family and childcare cases. And I say, well, don't, you know, if you're going to think about taking a woman's child away from someone, which is, I think, the worst thing you can do, rather than take, you know, even up there with taking a life, it's just so serious. You know, do it on the basis of behaviour, not on the basis of a label, because the label could change, whatever. So if, if the behaviour is... Te- you know, of a, of a nature that just, you know, you, you can't go back from that. I think we should stigmatise behaviours, yeah. So not, per- not, not syndromes and mm-hmm. people, yeah. So perhaps at this point, Hannah, unless you have anything to jump in with right now, we'll, we'll finally open it up to the audience for comments and questions. Yes, in the middle there. I'd just like to say to um, Dr. Peter Byrne that um, I was glad of what he said and uh, what he was talking about with some of the films where um, people actually feel sorry with it, sorry about Israel and, and with parity with us. Uh, a lot of you in the room will not remember, and some of you might remember, one of the first films that came out was One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest, and it was Jack Nicholson. And for years and years and years, we were stigmatised yeah. by saying, or you're the one flew over a cuckoo's nest, and that was a big, had a big, big impact. Now I, I can't remember; it was a long, long time ago. But that today has still stuck. That stigma has stuck. Where people say, "Oh, do you remember one flew?" And every so often they put it on the television. I think it's a couple of years since it's been on recently, and people say, "Ah, ah, ah you're one, uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest." So the, the media has got a big audience who are obviously still uh, anti-stigma mm. and. This, is, this film's been going out for years, as I've already said, and it's just a dreadful way, and I'm quite glad the way you said that some of the films that you had pointed out were really not um, positive uh, in discriminating against mental health. They actually had a, the opposite yeah. effect in mean, what you said, and I, I thought you know, that was very good. Yeah, it's 40 and years it's old. Nice to hear from yeah, you. It's 40 years old this year as a film, and uh, I tell the story, if, if, forgive me if I'm boring people who've heard it before, but when the filmmakers wanted to film it, in a, a real mental facility. The people who were in patients there said, can we be extras in the film? And they said, the filmmakers met them and said, no, you can't be, you don't look odd enough. So they, they had people, as you know, with, with twitches, with stammers, uh, with high kind of foreheads, you know. They got several people who, actors, to sort of, their idea of playing depression was, was, was actually pretending that they were severely intellectually disabled. So, and I think that's one of the, the tropes about depression. You know, I, I meet a lot of American consumers who say, you know, I may have depression, but I'm not stupid, you know, and, and that comes across in that film as well. So, yeah, thank you, I hear you. Yeah. Any other questions or comments from the audience? Ah, yes, thank you. I said I, I said I would get out of the way for the session. As some people know, I, I, I have a million of them. I have a million questions, so please don't, don't make me refer to my list. Uh, no, my question was, uh, in any film that depicts a creative type who's facing mental health issues, 
they tend to be from a sort of middle class or upper class background. Is that telling of society or is it just that people who face mental health problems from a working class family aren't given that outlet to be creative? I think it's just generally easier to have that sort of practice facilitated in your life if you have money behind you. I mean, if you need a piano or, you know, you need music lessons, or it's probably whatever your mental health status, it's just um, wealthier people are overrepresented in the arts because of the expense of training and the time that needs to be invested in things. But it may be also that there's a sense that, yeah, that there's a kind of sense that somebody from a more bohemian or interesting background that that trope of the mad genius fits in better there I don't know Interesting enough in finding Vivian Meyer uh, she was very poor, she was a nanny she had no money and um, her choices to um, to live, live, lead that life um, I think in the film anyway, uh, one of the big questions is well, why didn't she want the material benefits of being middle class? And that's kind of considered the norm and is, is the cloaked question, for me anyway, in the film. Um, so she, she her, 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 her place was that she felt much more comfortable, I think, with, um, with people who, who, were, who were not from that milieu, even though she worked within that milieu so that's what inspired her photographs and I think that's who she identified with and that was what was seen as strange so I think there is, there is a middle class bias in these films that isn't actually even kind of articulated for me sometimes Yeah, because I, I think you have to go to world cinema to see real characters who are living uh, very impoverished financially impoverished, not emotionally impoverished financially impoverished lives but you've worked with Gillies McKinnon in this you know, city, in this town where he, he has no hesitation in depicting very tough working-class uh, Glasgow life. I, I would recommend The Soloist, uh, Joe Wright's film from three years ago about a very impoverished uh, um, musician who really struggled uh, to get that scholarship to Juilliard and then had a psychotic breakdown. And uh, Joe Wright was very keen to show this as a hyper-realist film. So when he filmed scenes of homelessness in Los Angeles, he went to Skid Row and had real homeless people uh, talking about their homelessness and of course the American critics absolutely hated it because you know that you know that's Skid Row I think it's about probably 12 miles from you know Hollywood and Beverly Hills so th that's not a side of Los Angeles you know you're supposed to film in so uh, it's, it, it, you make a very interesting point though yeah yes we oui. um, you you mentioned the devil and Daniel Johnson very directly as a film that you dislike um, or that you had issues with, and other people mention it as a film they really value and relate to in the context of the, the session here, and I'd be interested in people's, in your thoughts on that as a panel, and maybe the audience members' thoughts too. Start from the far left and work our way across, or? Um, yeah, you start. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, yeah, we were talking about it just before we came on, because I, um, I was saying that I, I did like the film at the time but I, I also um, I attended one of the concerts that Daniel Johnson gave in, in London at the time when the film was coming out and they sort of brought him over to as part of the promotion of the film and I found that an extremely unsettling uncomfortable experience it was in the Barbican it was huge cavernous space it was many 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 people it suddenly become extremely fashionable to pretend that you'd always like Daniel Johnson um, and he 
was clearly not enjoying himself and sort of walked off stage halfway through. And it did, it did feel, and it did make me feel slightly different about the film. But I think what came across for me with that film and the complicated promotional stuff that happened afterwards, which I was vaguely aware of because it, it showed at the Edinburgh Film Festival, um, was that this was someone whose condition was very variable in that sometimes he really valued and wanted the attention and sometimes he really didn't. And I think that's something that's worth being aware of in these questions of exploitation as well, is that somebody's condition might change very dramatically in terms of how much they're um, participating, enjoying, appreciating, benefiting from the attention and how much it is damaging or exploitative. And if you're a filmmaker and you're trying to make a piece of work and you've got to try and accommodate that, then that is also difficult. And, you, you know, you touched on that with, with Corinne's film, where she sort of begins to intervene, begins to try and change what's going to happen. And so I think it's a, it's a complicated case. I don't, I don't feel easy about that film, personally. Emma? Um, I, I looked at some of it again before doing this panel and was struck by some moments of it, which I think... Um, I felt was skated over in the film, which is the complexity of friendship that was sort of like friendship, but also that these people were also slightly exploiting him and that this sort of complex relationship, I felt, wasn't really explored enough. But there was one moment where one of his his friends, who was a, a music journalist, I think, was talking about one episode where he began sort of raving in a in a... I don't know if you remember in the film, but it's in a stream by a university and he begins raving. And the friend um, and the group of friends come get him, don't know what to do with him, and says, um, basically, we always admired artists who were crazy. This is their terminology, because we thought there was a purity in it. We thought people like Van Gogh, Virginia Woolf, Sylvia Plath, that there was a purity in that. But presented by his behaviour at that time, all we could think of doing was the very pedestrian thing of basically putting him in an asylum. We didn't know what else to do. And I thought that actually the exploration of that was more interesting than the constant sort of reiteration of different strange behaviour, which is unfortunately what the film concentrated more on. Um, so the complexity of behaviour around about him, I think, was touched on, but I would have liked to explore it further. Peter? Yeah, can I give a slightly long-winded answer? Um, if you remember Maybe. in Bowling for Columbine, <laughs> one of Michael Moore's early films, there's a great it's about a high school shooting, which uh, I believe are not, these are not shootings about a mentally ill student, these are hate crimes, and they're a product of a gun-loving society. So, you know, this, these are really tough issues. But there's a scene where the headmistress is interviewed on camera by Michael Moore and she starts to cry. And his instinct at that time was to hug her but to protect her from the camera, his camera. And I, I was really impressed by that as a really humane and the right thing to do because the tough documentarist will want to see the woman crying and will, you know, get me a close-up, get me a close-up of that crying. You know, it's a really, you know, it was a really tough moment. And when I've been involved with, with documentary filmmakers, they all say, well, if you're going to give me a bipolar brackets person, I want them to go off during filming. I'd like them to go up or I'd like them to go down because that's why I'm making the film and you need to make it, they need to make it worth my while. So my point back to them is no. Uh, and my other point is when I was involved with Horizon uh, where we were filming uh, 10 people, five of whom had severe mental illness and five did not over a period of a week 
uh, I wanted all 10 participants to have final cut. So if they didn't like what was filmed about them and the way it was processed or edited, they could say, actually, retrospectively, I'm withdrawing my consent. And I think, ethically, that's the right call. Now, I know that makes for more dull documentaries, but I think with Devil and Daniel Johnson that I don't think he could really have consented to that film. And that's why I found it so difficult to watch. I also went to preview screenings because it was heavily marketed. And people, student audiences, they giggled and they laughed. And I just felt so awful that if that man had been in the audience, he would have seen himself uh, through the eyes of others in a really derogatory and disparaging way. So, no, I, I just, even though there are bits in it that I like, uh, I felt, you know, could, could he, you know, could he have consented to that film? And that's what I, why I say that if you're making a documentary, uh, you know, respect the person enough to give them essentially final cut. As it happened during a Horizon documentary, it ended up then with um, the people who had no mental health problems, by the way, were the most difficult to deal with, uh, because they, anything that showed them in a bad light was just a catas- you know, catastrophic. Uh, but the five people who had lived experience, including somebody who'd had a real problem with her weight and how she looked, uh, in the end, she got a, a less than two seconds cut out of the final cut. So this, you know, it wasn't an unreasonable demand, but I was really glad that we, we agreed that with filmmakers, and I had said I wouldn't be involved if they did not agree that. Well, much to consider coming out of this session, and uh, I was thrilled when I uh, knew what the makeup of this panel was going to be. It certainly has met my expectations. I hope it, it has yours too. I imagine that it has. Um, thank you very much again to our panelists, and we should give them a round of applause for their <laughs> insights.